Welcome to The Theater, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theater is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world in discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. This is the second episode in an ongoing series on the theme of health inequalities, which we will return to throughout the year. It has been developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics, a national UK charity organization focusing on promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations, and aiding career progression for the Afro-Caribbean community. Throughout the course of this series, we will explore current inequalities in both patient and professional outcomes and illustrate the steps that must be taken to ensure equality and fairness for all. This episode will discuss institutional racism within healthcare and the impact of racism on decision-making and patient care. Presented by Dr. Jade Okena, founding member of Melanin Medics, and Mr. Michael Okocha, a general surgical trainee and diversity officer for the Association of Surgeons in Training, this episode considers what can be done to mitigate the impact of racism within healthcare in order to foster a more inclusive environment for patients. Hi and welcome to the following episode on the series of Health Inequality Series by the Royal College of Surgeons in collaboration with Melanin Medics. Today we are here to talk about a particular focus on the reality of hidden racial bias and structural barriers which are embedded within the current healthcare workforce and the current design of the healthcare systems. And in particular there would be a particular focus which draws upon the Royal College of Surgeons looking upon an assessment of both extrinsic and intrinsic factors which propel clinical racial bias. My name is Dr. Jade O'Kenner and I'm one of the founding members of Merlin Medics, which is a national charity which specialises in promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations and aiding career progression for Black, African and Caribbean medical students and professionals. It's a great privilege to be here to be joined by Mr. Michael Okocha, who can kindly introduce himself. Thank you for having me. Um, so my name is Michael Kotcher. I'm a general surgery registrar uh, and the asset equality and diversity officer. So Mr. Michael Kotcher, that's a very humble introduction of yourself and I'm sure that you could give a bit more of a thorough nature of your passion within the surgical um, field. But we can obviously go through that with if a further discussion that's completely okay. Now Mr. Michael Kotcher, I think it's really, really important that you hold such a pivotal role in such a time like this within the Royal College of Surgeons. As per mentioned, you are leading equality and diversity inclusion within ASSET, and you could, of course, go in a bit more detail about that particular organisation. But if you also do know about the recent racial biases which are happening, and most importantly, what is being openly discussed, what are your current thoughts and how do you feel? Just to start with some transparency. Um, so I think this is a area of concern that has been building momentum for a while now. Um, and it is good to see that people are becoming more aware within their own organisations. You know, the colleges have done their inquiry, um, ASSET, we've done an internal review, and other organisations are following suit. Um, so it's good to see people are starting to take this seriously and move forward with it. How, how do you feel about the discussion of diversity specifically within the Royal College of Surgeons? And most importantly, what do you think needs to be done differently now, which couldn't have possibly been done before? How I feel about it specifically is that it's about time. <laughs> um, and what couldn't have been done before uh, I think before there wasn't enough social pressure. I don't think um, I don't think there was enough momentum behind movements like Black Lives Matter, um, or even, unfortunately, movements looking at gender disparities. Um, and I, I think that over the last year, we've seen a lot more interest, a lot more people trying to to find out how they can help, and that's putting pressure on people to to perform. And so I'm going to touch upon that in particular about the societal pressure, but that would go on forward with the other part of the conversation. 
But something that I wanted to ask you in particular is what are your thoughts on institutional racism and how it is embedded into the culture of the NHS if we first take a step back? Thank you. That's a really important question. Um, Firstly, one of the big topics that came out or one of the big ideas that came out of the ASIC conference is that an institution is made up of people and people determine the environment. And therefore, we need to understand people. Humans need to categorise. The volume of information that we take in is huge every minute, every hour, and therefore we find circuit shortcuts to help us process this information. This is where bias comes in. So bias is a statistical term relating to estimates. And we make these estimates about things, people, groups, comparing them to one another to decide if we are in favour or against them. And again, this is a short circuit method for helping us make a decision. This is unfortunately most often done in a way that is unfair. So your previous experiences and education will help you determine what that short circuit looks like. An unconscious or implicit bias are social stereotypes about certain groups of people that individuals form outside of their own conscious awareness. Now, I do believe that there are a few people with overt racist beliefs. And it doesn't take a long look on Twitter to find these people. But I think that most most bias within the NHS is unconscious. And I think there's a, a great line from, from a Hoffman paper uh, looking at racial bias and pain assessment. And it says, discrimination often occurs due to in-group favoritism rather than out-group hostility. And to paraphrase, it essentially means that I am more likely to treat someone who looks like me, has the same experiences like me, the same rather than someone who has a completely different life experience to me or looks different to me. Um, in my experience, these biases form due to education, troops in social media, you know, the concept of uh, blacks having a different biology or whites having uh, different, uh, better health care. It, it, these are, you know, these are stereotypes that are portrayed in our education, in our media, and it's it, it develops these unconscious biases. Thank you very much, um, Michael. And one thing that you touched upon is that you feel that a lot of the bias is unconscious, especially when it comes to the NHS. Now. Considering the fact that diversity and inclusion has now become, you know, such a greater awareness at a greater level than we would have ever thought, do you still feel that as a society we can still consider these biases as, as unconscious or just not being known? Because we are very much aware of the facts of the detrimental impact that it has on patient outcomes, on whether the structure of leadership within particular organisations do you really feel that people are willing to take the risk to say this is no longer unconscious and we actually need to make a change? Having a, an awareness of a bias or awareness of equality and diversity and inclusivity does not necessarily mean that you know the actions that need to be taken. And I think it's really important now for strong leadership within the NHS, within the colleges, within our training associations to start pushing people to take the right steps. The choose to challenge concept is one of the greatest things that has come out this year. And I think it will empower a lot of people to start actually speaking up. You know, what do you do if you see a patient being discriminated against or you see a, a fellow staff member being treated unfairly? You need to work out what your own limitations are, yes. But at the same time, the Choose the Challenge empowers you to say something. And I think, yes, you're right. We are moving past a time where people can throw their hands up and say, I'm sorry, I didn't realise that I had that bias or uh, I 
you know, I, I didn't mean to be racist. I, I think now people need to start doing the, the reading for themselves, the research for themselves, and start understanding how these racial stereotypes have come into existence. Um, there was an incredible Twitter feed about how we uh, operate on black kids with umbilical hernias much sooner than their white counterparts. And when the uh, Twitter person uh, took this apart, they um, essentially demonstrated that the evidence that led to those assumptions were actually looking at the difference between impoverished children and children of higher socioeconomic status, and that the outcomes were better in children of higher educational, uh, higher socioeconomic status. Um, but that's known, and they've turned it into a race discussion, and therefore we treat black patients differently. And I think that's something that we all need to start doing is actually looking at why do we do something? You know, why do we treat patients in a certain way? Um, my favorite is looking at. Uh, how you're taught about tuberculosis in med school and you're taught that if a uh, person from Asian background presents to you with a, a cough, that that is most likely to be TB, full stop. Doesn't take into account where they were born, doesn't take into account you know, recent travel. Your, your mind will go to TB because that's how you're taught and it's circular learning, so that's reinforced into you every year of med school. If you look at the actual stats, for example, in London, TB is most prevalent amongst black people. But it's not mentioned. It's not studied. Um, you know, you talk about a, a black gentleman uh, with weight loss or uh, comes in with fatigue, do a HIV test. But HIV is most prevalent in the white population. And if they came in with those symptoms, I wouldn't go jump to a HIV test. Um, so I think there needs to be uh, conscious efforts to educate ourselves. And I think, yes, we are running out of land with the concept that, you know, you can be, in, you know, implicit in your in your racial uh, biases. Um, I think there's a greater awareness. And I think a lot of people don't know what to do with that information. And that's why we need strong leadership. Thank you very much for touching upon that particular last key point about needing strong leadership. Because, for example, you mentioned something that we have to be able to choose to challenge. Now, drawing upon the fact that you've actually specialised in a degree looking into strategic leadership and organisational design, I want to ask you specifically what type of leadership is needed, not just in terms of needing leaders, but what type of leadership is actually needed to change the culture of medicine? and to make sure that it changes at the fast pace that we do need. Because, for example, we've done a lot with regards to, you know, diversity training. At Men and Medics, we do workshops looking into unconscious bias. Within yourself, you're particularly leading as the equality and diversity officer within ASSET. But how can we make sure that there is the right type of leadership and what do you think is the most important one for this current time? I think we need leaders who are inspirational, and I'll come on to that in a second. And we need leaders who actually are the technical sort, who understand policies and understand infrastructure. They're two very separate type of leaders. Okay, So the inspirational leader will always set the aspirations of the organization. We want to be this type of organization. And that's really important because if people have a vision to work towards, it is easier. So... Really simple thing. Uh, when I was in Chicago in my clinical placement, we had uh, this policy at Swedish Covenant Hospital, which is one of the best hospitals I've ever worked at, um, and they had a smile policy. And this was an aspirational leader who came up with a smile policy. Now, it sounds ridiculous, but if you were not smiling, everyone would ask you if you're okay. You would not be able to get down the corridor without someone saying, hey, are you Okay. And you smile at a person, they'd be like, oh, you're fine. You know, like, it, it was just a way of checking in on each other. So we were taught to look out. If someone's unhappy, ask them what's going on. Even if they're your attending, you know, even if it was the, the cleaner, just ask them. And I thought that was one of the most powerful things. I learned 
everyone's name because I was miserable in my first clinical rotation. Everyone kept asking me, but I learned everyone's name and I felt so supported. I think it takes an aspirational leader to do that. And then the technicalities of it. How do you create a policy that prevents uh, the, or prevents a window of opportunity for unconscious bias to creep in? You know, how do you set time directives? So should there be a policy that says all children uh, in A&E must receive analgesia if they've got abdominal pain within 30 minutes? Should that be put in place? Because the evidence shows that some children, black children, under the age of five, with presenting with appendicitis, do not get any pain relief at all in the emergency department. It's only when they're admitted to specialist care. So, yes, we need two types of leaders, I think. I think we need the aspirational ones who can come up with concepts, um, who can say, this is what we should be working towards. And then we need the, the technical leader who can actually put the infrastructure in place. One of the further questions that I do want to ask you is, would you be able to address how racism has been derived in the Royal College of Surgeons? Because you touched upon a particular point that it takes a technical leader to be able to put in the benchmarks to prevent it happening in the first place. But how have we got to the stage where it's been derived and it's happened at such an amplified level and, you know, it, it, it's gone really unchecked? What do you think has allowed for it to derive in the Royal College of Surgeons, especially for so long? That's a really tough question. Um, I like to go back to that line that discrimination often occurs due to in-group favoritism rather than out-group hostility. And I think we need to hold that in focus. But it's not because... Uh, not always because. I, I will say that there is a degree of racist behaviours that have been prevalent in all colleges and in all associations. And again, that is the minority. But in order for such uh, st structural uh, differences to exist in the treatment of people of different genders and different backgrounds, it comes back to this concept that it is easier for a white man to pass the baton on to another white man because he believes that there will be shared similar beliefs, ideas, and concepts. And therefore, it seems or it may feel that it's easier to pass the baton on that way. And that amplified over years, you know, decades of the baton being handed to people who look and think the same way is why we've ended up in this situation. And if you don't mind me asking, uh, Michael Okocha, as a black man, have you ever felt as if there was a difference in the baton being passed on towards you? Yes. Um, you know, I've I presented evidence to the, to the colleges um, about my experiences as a black surgical trainee in the UK. Um, I've had consultants overlook me before um i have been uh mistaken for someone else and then it being turned into a joke but we both look alike even though one of my colleagues was uh from the middle east and i'm a black man um i've had you know a consultant sit down and tell me hey you know you should definitely apply for orthopedics because right now you know we're all about the equality and diversity it's a really good opportunity for you. And I said, uh, sorry. And he was like, yeah, you know, before blacks weren't really welcome. And, and now we've got, you know, loads in the department. And I just felt really sick. Um, so, yes, I, I feel like there have been incidents um, that, yes, have, have demonstrated that there is a, a degree of discrimination how have I challenged those things? I've had a conversation, I presented evidence to the college. Um, I've had a conversation with people at conference. You know, I'm starting the chats. I've got the 50 Faces of Surgery program up and running. Um, we've got the Here I Am campaign going. Uh, we're due to launch a discrimination study to help be the voice to the unheard. 
um, and in association with Bristol Wins, we're doing a textbook challenge with med students, which is going to try and remove those racial tropes and stereotypes within tax. And if we tackle it from the bottom, from the middle, and from the top, I'm sure we're going to make a difference. Um, that's amazing. Um, and we're going to touch upon those different mechanisms of how you challenge those specifically. But one of the further questions that I do want to ask you in particular is now that we've taken a particular focus on how racism just exists in general within the Royal College of Surgeons, I think the most important thing is to actually factor in how racism has a direct impact on the delivery of care. And so, you know, we are in such a time right now where we're doing a lot of COVID-19 campaigns and we're trying to reach out to hard to reach communities. And I think what this is explicitly saying is that there is a breakdown in trust in the relationship which underrepresented groups have in particular with the Royal Colleges, whether it is with the delivery of care, whether it is with previous bad experiences. And so the specific question that I want to ask you, Michael, is how do you feel that unconscious biases, which we have discussed, whether they are implicit, whether they are explicit, whether they are covert, whether they are not, how do they within the healthcare impact upon patient perception of the healthcare system or their willingness to access care when needed? So if you look at the data from American communities, it is clear that there is a distrust in healthcare full stop uh, with within black and ethnic minority communities. And I think the same can be said over in the UK, um, especially if you want to look at just information about the, the pandemic. So uh, early on, we knew that there was a difference between uh, black healthcare professionals and white healthcare professionals and the outcomes. Um, and we knew that the same existed within the patient population. And it took six weeks from when the media first mentioned it to the paper being released by the government explaining or trying to explain these differences. And then there were further delays in accessing that paper. So it was released, but people couldn't access that paper. Um, and when we did get a look, it mentioned distrust, lack of healthcare access, and poverty and structural racism. Now, there is an ongoing issue, which is that the leaders who are at the forefront of these conversations do not look or have the same experiences as the patients that they're trying to represent. And therefore, you have allowances for things like these delays that erode the public trust in healthcare. And we've gotten to a stage where there is significant distrust. Um, and that does factor onto later presentation times and avoidance of healthcare. I think the way we make a difference is by listening to these patient groups. I've yet to see a study come out that looked at the experience of patients in the UK um, and focusing on racial disparities. Um, and I think that's a big body of work that needs to be undertaken by the colleges to understand, you know, are we, at, are we given equal access? If ASIC can do it to look at our courses and say, have we made this accessible to everyone? The colleges can do that to look at the, the, the patient pathways that are in place, um, you know, to, to make sure that people are being able to access the healthcare service and that information is there and that we are listening to the patient body to build that trust back up. Mm -hmm. That's very much um, important. 
And one thing that I've noticed, so for example, we've had very important organisations that have been conceptualised, such as the NHS Race and Health Observatory, which is trying to make sure there's a strong evidence base which gives details to these racial inequalities that do exist. But I think sometimes, you know, what we do need a lot more so than just a strong research paper is actually a strong culture and most importantly, a strong sense of attitude that healthcare professionals can deliver to these underrepresented groups. There are a lot of people who find that when they do enter into a particular, you know, clinic environment, that they're being judged, that they're not necessarily being treated the same, um, that there are worse patient outcomes. And I think most importantly, if we do look at what COVID-19 has done, is that it's really showcased who the most vulnerable in society are, and most importantly, the absence of the safety net for those who have been impacted the most have, of course, been the poorest in society or those who are not amplified when it comes into the Royal College of Surgeons. And so I do believe, as you mentioned, that is really, 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 really important that we make sure that healthcare is accessible to all. Now, another question that I do want to ask you, and this may touch in into the campaigns, which is absolutely wonderful that you are delivering and that you are leading um, in particular in this particular time. But what I want to ask you is, how does the patient physician communication work to incorporate a diverse message and culture which upholds the message of promoting diversity in medicine? But most importantly, in layman terms, how is it communicating the message that we are giving the excellent care to you, irrespective of your background? Big question, really big question. So how do we essentially demonstrate the work that we are doing within our so within our organisations to make the patients believe that we care and that we're listening? Um, so I think the first step is to, to understand how we treat ourselves within the profession. Now, once we've corrected that and we've created an equal workplace where people understand each other, because it's easier to understand your peers than it is to understand the patients. You know, these are people who've come to work to help people. So if you can start with a mutual understanding there where people respect each other, respect each other's cultures, and this goes back to that smile policy, you know, suddenly you've got a workplace that everyone recognises that each person's an individual with their own culture, with their own background. We can celebrate that. When your organisation is healthy, your customers or in this case, your patients respond to that. They see a thriving hospital, a hospital where people are treated equally and well. And they say, OK, I trust these people. I know the standards of care aren't going to differ because I've seen how they treat each other. We have so much infighting within the NHS. The fact that people can go to work with the aim of caring for a patient and have someone say something racist or uh, sexist to them from another staff worker is insane. These, these are people who are just going to help. Um, and if we can eliminate those cultures and become a healthy organization that produces mutual respect and understanding, then that is shown to the public. You know, it's no longer further evidence of racism in, in the NHS. It's excellent care has been delivered by the NHS. Uh, patients see it in the media. They'll see it when they go to hospitals to visit loved ones or themselves go in as patients. They'll see that everyone's treated equally. And there is, yeah, I, it sounds aspirational, I know. <laughs> but I, I truly believe that if you can fix the workplace culture, you know, Simon Sinek says it in his, in his book, um, Great Leaders Eat Last, that if you fix the workplace culture, everything else follows. You look after your work colleagues, everything else follows. People go to work happy, there's less discrimination, there's less bias, people are aware, people understand each other. The work environment improves. Patient care will improve. And there is evidence that where there is good working environment, that patient outcomes are better. And that's why we need to start with the internals, with these reviews, 
with the database, collecting all this evidence so that we can make strong aspirational and technical recommendations. So it's very much interesting because when you look into the core aims of the Royal College of Surgeons and their particular statement on equality, diversity and inclusion, they focus in particular on two specific domains in how to facilitate this change, which one is organisational processes, which you have touched upon with you know the way that the structure is set up. But the latter is actually professional behaviours, which you've mentioned, Michael, about how you relate to each other. So often when we look into challenging professional behaviours, there is this particular theory which looks into Tideman's seven steps for defeating bias in the workplace. And what they found is that it does take a pretty much a long time. Now, If you do look upon addressing racial bias in the workplace or how people can feel comfortable and equitable, is it possible for the current culture to allow people to feel to feel uncomfortable with accepting that they are biased? Is it okay for people to speak up and say, I may have had a poor assumption about a specific demographic in the past? Because, for example, you touched upon a very transparent conversation, which I do want to say thank you for sharing, where a senior spoke to you and encouraged you to enter into profession because, you know, you're now welcome. You know, are people allowed to feel uncomfortable with saying these things that possibly could cause harm, but possibly could be a bridge to moving forward? Thank you. Um, I think this is probably the, the key to everything. Um, and is the most important thing that we need to to work out how to do. I think it is important to recognise that being uncomfortable is a fight or flight response. And there are two options here. You can either become more curious, i.e. fight, so understand more, learn more, Seek others who have any experience that you're, you're trying to learn about and learn more from them. Or you can flight. So you can run away from the situation and allow your unconscious bias to, to continue to fester. Well, it, it wouldn't be unconscious anymore. So the conscious bias to, to fester, to become more hostile, to turn away from learning more. And I think... We're in a very precarious situation where there is so much being shared that those who have implicit or explicit biases are being challenged almost on a daily basis. And whilst that's really good progress from it not being challenged at all, it is system overload. And therefore, it takes a really aspirational leader who is able to harness that and say, look, this is how we should be creating change. This is where, you know, you need someone to say, look, you know, it's really uncomfortable conversation. Instead of uh, you being bombarded with this every day, should we break this down into a weekly conversation where come and learn from your colleagues who are experiencing this or says, these are the things that I've done to, to tackle it in myself, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I have in the past, you know, especially in uni, used language that now, looking back, I could say to myself, actually, it was a bit uh, unfair towards women, you know, throw like a girl in rugby. It, it's, it's the kind of uh, language that has been wiped out from my vocabulary because I've listened I've learned, I've grown from it. Um, And I think that these are the, uh, these are the conversations that aspirational leaders need to be having within the workplace. I want to ask a very uncomfortable conversation, if you don't mind me asking, Um, especially as, you know, being part of an organisation called Men and Medics, where we often are not scared to challenge the status quo. And, you know, with regards to what you are doing in particular at the Association of Surgical um, Surgical Trainees and Training, in particular, looking at how you choose the challenge and the different phases of surgery. 
what I want to ask you is that you've said that we're allowed to have these uncomfortable conversations and this is what's going to help to propel change. But most importantly, what people have often said is that these changes need to happen or these conversations need to happen in places of leadership. Now, if you've had someone that has come to you and they have challenged you and they have said that there was a time where Blacks were not welcome in this particular profession, do you personally believe that a diverse workforce is welcome in the positions of leadership within the Royal College of Surgeons? And if so, how, or if not, dare I say, how are we actually going to have those conversations to propel change? Jade, you're asking me tough questions. <laughs> um, so we know from the evidence. Um, so we know from review of heads of associations. We know from uh, review of the editors of journals. We know that there is a lack of diversity at the leadership table, at the top table. What we also know is that the medical workforce is now becoming more diverse, is more diverse. And we know that the, the leaders of today are not the leaders of tomorrow. And we are continuously challenging the status quo. And I know these are all catchphrases and, and you know buzzwords, but it is happening you are starting to see women being a prevalent force on college councils. We're starting to see trainee associations change, uh, change from having a predominantly white council to a really diverse mixed gender council. Um, and we're starting to hear conversations um, from other unheard communities and them garnering support. I think that these voices are not going unheard. Um, and yes, there's an element of an echo chamber where people are talking to the same people and sharing the same or similar stories to the same audience. Um, but it, it, it's, it sometimes leaves the chamber and it sometimes makes an impact on someone who wouldn't consider ever listening to that information or perceiving that information. Um, and I think we are slowly, unfortunately, slowly getting to a point where it is acceptable to hear other voices. And that's the first step. In terms of how that relates to, to the colleges inviting people to leadership positions and whether they're welcome there, I think it's going to be... So I think... There has been some work to welcome in people there. But I think we're going to be, you know, a generation of future doctors who it wouldn't need to be a conversation. There wouldn't need to be an invite because they would already be on the council. You know, I I expect in, you know, the next 10 years, we'll see barriers that were once perceived as insurpassable be completely shattered. Um, and... You know, I hope some of the work that I'm doing will help reduce those barriers. And I believe the colleges are very seriously looking into how they reduce those barriers themselves. I think that's um, a very important um, point that you've raised um, with regards to how the college is doing that. Because if we do take a particular focus on championing diversity at RCS England, um, RCS England have made four particular commitments. And in particular, if we look at two particular focus points with which they've made those commitments for, there was one where they really wanted to engage and consult with the membership on the topics of equality, diversity and inclusion to make sure that it's an ongoing conversation, ensuring that all views are open to feedback and improvement. And I think it's really, really, really important that as this discussion is being made, that the right people are in the room not just with regards to their race, but also to the upbringing, whether they come from a low social economic class, whether they come from, you know, a class where there is a lot of privilege. The most important thing is that there is a diverse element of thought. Now, 
One other thing that they are also looking at is how to audit the diversity of staff and to review internal policies and procedures. And if you could just possibly discuss what you have seen as current efforts for these two particular commitments, could you possibly shed light on those? So I think the first thing that I've seen as a commitment to improving the conversations in equality, diversity and inclusivity is the fact that there has been an internal review um, and that the colleges are taking evidence and listening to people from different backgrounds to hear how they can make a difference. Um, I think the next thing that has been really clear to me, um, especially in my role and especially uh, having been invited to give evidence at, the, at those committees, is that the college is willing to support any initiative that improves EDI in the workplace. The colleges, sorry. Um, and I, you know, I think back to three years ago and even just, you know, watching TV and you could count the number of black people you'd see in the space of watching TV over the day on, on fingers of one hand. And we've moved to this year where almost every advert I have seen has some form of, you know, whether it's LGBT representation or gender rep representation or ethnicity representation. And it is a beauty to see. And I would say that the colleges are still in their infancy in this EDI discussion, but it's not going to be very long before we see proper results. I'm optimistic that, you know, the results from the internal review and the recommendations from that will be upheld by every surgical body, every surgical organization. Um, and, you know, in a, in a few years time, I hope that we won't be having a conversation about how we can investigate EDI, but how we are upholding the values that have been put in place by these reviews. And um, that's a very um, thoughtful discussion and a thoughtful aspiration. And um, I think it relays really into a powerful statement, which was issued by ASSET. And as you have um, communicated, is that the organisation does believe that we ought to move towards a health system in which articles, bodies, organisations or councils ought to not exist to deliver a message that we require this change. And you mentioned that you believe that this would happen maybe in 10 years um, because it has to be progressive. Now, one thing that I do believe is important is that as much as it may take 10 years, maybe from your particular um, hindsight, and we can't necessarily change the healthcare workforce right now, is what can we do in that particular time as a safety net for the people that we are fighting for that we are advocating for, that as much as the change is not being made now, and it possibly will be in the future, what can we do to still support them? Because we can't ignore the statistics. We can't ignore the fact that, you know, there, 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 are, there are specific implicit and racial bias that do change and impact, you know, the way that care is delivered. We can't change necessarily the lives that were lost during COVID-19 that possibly had social economic factors which came into play. We can't, you know, change the fact that there might be people, for example, in your position as a surgical trainee, who are aspiring to be either a leader, but they have, you know, racial bias within the particular workforce that is stopping their career. Now, until we get into that particular prime moment in 10 years, what could we do to protect those people or to protect, you know, the lives that are impacted in that time convening? Giving a voice to the unheard, sharing their views are the most powerful things we can do in this, in this period of change and uncertainty and learning how to understand each other. It is imperative that we continue to put support in place. And part of the work I'm doing with Asset now, our main focus is setting up a platform for those who've been discriminated against and learning how we can actually support trainees who've undergone things like bullying or 
sexual harassment or racial harassment. I think that 10 years is, is, a, is a rough estimate of when we'll see uh, an equal playing field um, across all of the protected characteristics. But in that time period, you know, we will have more people with more diverse backgrounds feel empowered. We will have more organizations becoming inclusive and diverse, you know, hearing voices from all backgrounds, giving everyone an opportunity to speak. And we will finally see, you know, those barriers that previously existed, the doors being opened by people who've already got there or people who've had opportunities to speak. You know, I have been in my asset role a very short time, in my opinion, and I've already had people reach out to me saying that they feel from some of the work that we've done that they feel more empowered. Um, so I think I think it's not just a case of, uh, you know, wait 10 years and leave those people unsupported. I think that we have to continue supporting them, continue amplifying their voices, as you said earlier. Um, and I, I think those things will continue to make a difference. So um, thank you, Michael. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that I do want to touch upon, which is very much important, is that it is an incredible thing to see that the Royal Colleges and most importantly, their reaction to the challenging times that we are in is that we ought to change as opposed to we ought to ignore and act as if it's not a reoccurrent issue. And I do believe that it's also powerful to see that you know these aspects of leadership or change that we are seeing is not just being constricted to those who are necessarily at the top, but we are seeing people at all different levels of training who are really willing to move forward to promote diversity in, in medicine, but most importantly in the Royal College of Surgeons. So the last question that I, I want to ask you, and I hope that you leave for the particular conversation today, because one thing that we really wanted to factor in is, first and foremost, what racism in the delivery of patient care is specifically how it's specific within the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, but most importantly, how we can actually take actionable steps to actually deliver change. One of the key things that I do want to ask you in this time, because as I said, it's a weighty task that you have um, leading equality and diversity and inclusion in, in, in such an interesting time that we're discussing about it in such a high level that we've never done before. What is one thing that you want to do in this particular role that you believe will impact change at a great and high level, especially due to the lack of change that had been done before? Albert Bandura um, says that seeing people similar to oneself succeed by sustained effort raises observers' beliefs that they too possess the capabilities to matter comparable activities to succeed. And that is representation and visualization matters. If I can see other people in leadership roles, I believe that who look like me or have gone through similar experiences as I have, I can believe that I too can attain those positions. And I think the piece of work that I am doing that is the most important to me is the 50 Faces video series. And I think that is going to showcase diversity in the surgical workforce that a lot of people haven't seen. I think it's going to be a real eye-opener in terms of the barriers that, you know, consultant colleagues, professors of colleges, professors of associations have gone through to, to get to where they are. I think it's going to be inspirational and also give practical advice on how to overcome these challenges. And I think that's what people need to hear. Um, the piece of work that I would love to continue is the Here I Am campaign. Um, and essentially every month it's a conversation on Twitter, um, we may move it to other platforms, um, but 
a conversation where people just share, um, share what they're facing, what they've faced, how they've overcome it. Um, and it's important for people to know that they're not alone. I think one of the, the biggest challenges that those who face discrimination or bullying or harassment is that you're made to feel that it is a, your fault and therefore you feel that you are alone in it. And it's not true. Um, so I will fight tooth and nail to not have people feel like that. Um, so those are the two things that I, one, I'm doing and two, hope to continue. Um, thank you very much, Michael. And as I, as I would say that there are many initiatives, um, whether by the leadership done by yourself, um, especially for the teams that you are in that are really committing to this particular message of promoting diversity in medicine, even for the overarching message of this particular podcast, which is really challenging the status quo and really trying to educate as many people as they can with what they can do at any particular stage to change and to make the culture which they are in more equitable. Um, I once again say thank you for your time, uh, Michael Okutcha. And as per mentioned, you are leading equality, diversity and inclusion in a very challenging time and in a time that we could possibly see a lot more fast-paced change than we have been seeing. Um, and most importantly, to understand the cumulative effects of what medical racism and patient care has done, whether that is a distrust in patient care or whether it has been the alarming um, death rates that could have been prevented if there was a higher level quality of training in medicine or surgery that didn't just focus on the numbers, but most importantly, focus on the backgrounds of patients and understanding people's peers and who they are. So I think it's an important conversation that we are having and most importantly for the campaigns that you are delivering. And we do want to see those changes as we do continue to move forward. So thank you very much, um, Mr. Michael Okutcha. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Continuing from the themes introduced in this episode, the next part of our ongoing collaboration with Millennium Medics will discuss gender diversity in patient care, featuring Dr. Allison May Berner, academic clinical fellow in medical oncology and specialty registrar in gender medicine. This podcast series was developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics, with contributions by Jade Okene, Ayomide Ayorinde, David Falui, William Adeboye, Temedayo Osunrobi, and Nina Soamimo. Please see the show notes for links to articles referenced in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the theater wherever you get your podcasts. For further updates from the college, please visit our website or follow us on social media.